Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bones. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter Him in a diverse community and participate with Him in a mission of loving our neighbors. So I'm going to be speaking uh, on Matthew 18, um, and we're going to, it's kind of one of the shepherdy stories, um, which are pretty ubiquitous, like pretty common in the Bible. We kind of have this real theme of shepherding that a lot of us, maybe we draw solace from, or it's kind of comforting, or that idea of God being a shepherd, which is a very cool, even though we're pretty separated from historical kind of biblical history per se in the Bible, it's still an image that I think really grabs us, can really um, create consolation in our lives. And so we're going to lean into that. But before we get there, we're going to kind of take a little, a little route of trying to get there and see what Jesus is talking about when he talks about shepherd. And so in Matthew 18, where we're going to start, it's Jesus has been starting to, if we took kind of a 10,000 foot uh, view of things, Jesus is, you know, he's kind of done his ministry life and stuff, his two and a half years, and he starts alluding or actually saying pretty directly that bad things are going to happen. Like we're moving towards this end game uh, in this context where if I keep teaching and preaching and being the way I am, I know I'm provoking a lot of wrath and ire and anger from other groups. And so in Matthew 16, 21, he says it this way. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And he repeats that. So he kind of, he gets into this, and in a lot of the gospels, you see that he kind of says it over and over trying to get it, get the disciples to understand what's in play, what's going to happen here. So in chapter 17, he says it again. He says, when they, it says, when they were together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. So he's trying to insist on this, try to get them to kind of wake up to the reality of what's going to happen. They will kill him, he says, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And it says there that the disciples then were filled with grief. And so this, they love Jesus, and Jesus loves them. And there's this kind of reality that there could be a fissure or a break in their relationship because of Jesus' death is very scary for them. They don't want to lose uh, their rabbi, their leader. However, as they're thinking about this, because they live in the social context they live in, you know, we'd like to think we can always arise out of our social context and not be influenced by the bad stuff or the bad perspectives. So they're thinking about this idea of Jesus's death, his departure, and considering what the future would be like without him on earth, and also what it would be like for him in heaven. So they start to kind of, oh yeah, like if you move on, like who's going to be in charge? You know, this starts to kind of seep into their thinking. So in uh, Matthew 18, 1, it says this, at that, that time, so Jesus has made his two speeches, saying he's going to die and rise again. It says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus, so they broached the topic. It's like, we should find out who of us is the favorite. 
<laughs> so they go to him and they say, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven uh, beyond you? Um, and so Jesus is leaving. He's told them that. And their next question is, who fills your shoes? Who gets to be the next person in line? And we might think, you know, if we were real literalists reading this, we might think, you know, is this just a bunch of men being egotistical and typical of men who want prestige and power? Yes, that is part of it for sure. Uh, but we could humanize them a little bit too, like in the social context. And they're looking at like kind of how hierarchy operates in their world. So they see their Roman overlords, uh, you know, they're, uh, they suffer under the burden of the Romans uh, and their colonial practices there. Uh, we could think of maybe the Sadducees, you know, how do they get power? The Sadducees align with their Roman oppressors. So they're, they're collaborators, they're colluders. That's another way to get power. They could see the Pharisees or maybe the high priests. High priesthood was just, it was bought and sold. You want to be high priest, you buy your way in. And so they see, oh, that's kind of the way that hierarchy. So there's all these hierarchies and power structures, and they're part of this world. And so they're like, oh, okay, like that's the way of the world. Someone's got to be, kind of get the prestige and, and power and leadership. And so that's the way they thought about things. To expand what's going on in this verse, we could go back to like an OG story, right? Like if you look at the Gospels and you, you look, we're looking at Matthew, but if you look at Mark, that's the earliest Gospel. And there's that great story in Mark 10 where the very humble James and John come before Jesus and say, hey, can we ask you for one thing, oh, master? And he says, tell me what you want, my friends. And they're like, I want to sit on your right and I want to sit on your left. That's reasonable. Uh, and it says the, the rest of the disciples, the reaction is they are indignant. And I love that word because all I can think of is my daughter who's 25 now when she was like about four and something didn't go her way. She'd put her hand on her hip and she'd stomp. <laughs> Has anybody seen that? She was a stompy person. So she would, she did that for quite a while. She probably still kind of does it. Uh, but you know, that's a great picture. That's the rest of the disciples. James and John make their play, and they're all hand on the hip, stomp, because they're mad they didn't get there first, right? Like they're just like, we're ticked, but it's because you beat us to the gun, because we're living in this zero-sum world of power and prestige. And you made the play first, so we are mad. We're furious about this. Um, so this is how many in our world, this is how systems work. It's how hierarchy works. Like, that's kind of the same uh, from then to now. Zero-sum world. Dysfunctional systems where one person or a group of people get elevated and others do not. And they offer suff often suffer for it. Like, whoever's kind of the winner or the elevated one, the other ones suffer. And they're hurt because of this. And there's an anxious, anxious sense in their world for sure of limited resources and fear stoked, stoked up in people's hearts. There's just, there's just a little bit to go around. So I kind of got to grab that, you know, people call it a brass ring or whatever. I got to try to get my piece of the pie before it disappears. And it wasn't the disciples that only thought this way either. You know, there's in Matthew 20, this story is re, 
retold by Matthew is retold by Matthew, and in that story, it's Mama Zebedee, okay? It's not James and John, it's their mom. You know, that isn't embarrassing. The mom just shows up, it's like, I gotta get my word in for my sons. And it says she gets on her knees and she, she says, Jesus, the same very similar story, you know, can you grant me this one thing and whatever, and it's kind of a similar, it plays out in a similar way. Theologian Stanley Hauervoss has written on this story in Matthew 18, and he says this, and it's a really, and it kind of goes to the zero something. It says, the mother of the sons of Zebedee wants to know where her sons fit into the hierarchy that she assumes is necessary for the kingdom. Okay, there's assumptions there that higher, the hierarchies we see in the world around us are the exact same hierarchies that are in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of God. That's what it's like. So this just absorption of this idea that it's the same. So Mama Zebedee, James and John, and all the disciples have assumed that there is a necessary hierarchy in Jesus's kingdom, just like the hierarchies they observe everywhere else. As we said before, a corrupt temple system, the Romans, etc., etc. So maybe Jesus in all of these, in this story and in other stories, is trying to help the disciples grapple with this and understand, you know, they say, who's going to be the next big leader? Who's the next? What's... He, he starts to say, hey, I want to do something. I want to teach you or form in your hearts what leadership in the kingdom, in the kingdom, what it looks like, what it should be like, because I'm creating an alternative politics for existing or for being in the world and so I just want to read this passage I brought my Bible you can see it but I'm using my phone uh, because this is one of those Bibles where the pages are so thin I can see the letters on the other side and it all blurs because I'm getting old and I should wear glasses uh, but I, I'm not I haven't yeah, anyhow, I didn't do that. Uh, so Matthew 23, this is uh, the woes where Jesus really drops the gloves on the disciples and others about their failures as the church. Um, you know, Jesus is a nice, friendly, warm shepherd who hugs all his sheep and like treats them real nice, but once in a while he does, he has a staff that can operate in other ways too. So um, this is what it says here. He's talking about uh, the Pharisees and you know, how they operate in Israel. And in verse 5, he says about them, everything they do is done for people to see. So that's their spiritual lives. It's performative. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries. Everybody knows what that is. Uh, with they're, they're part of their clothing that they wear. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels and the tassels on their garments long. So basically plumage, right? The peacock uh, kind of guys are walking through like, look at my real awesome outfit. That's what they're doing. Uh, they love the, nothing wrong with that. That's great. But the way they're doing it is not cool. Uh, they love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogue. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. 
So I love to be a spiritual leader because I love in my ears to hear someone say rabbi or pastor or elder or whatever. Fill the slot there. And then he says this to the disciples. This is his alternative vision for community and how it doesn't have to live on the assumptions of the world around them. Oops. He said, um, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers and sisters. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, and for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so you get that sense of Jesus' vision, right? He has this really inspiring vision for community, for how it can all operate, how it can be an alternative polity or an alternative structure to everything they see around them, which again pushes some down and crushes them and lifts others up and exalts them. Uh, because they're good leaders per se? No, in this context, it's because because of cruelty, because of that zero-sum worldview, because I'm going to get mine and I don't give a rat's ass what happens to other people. So that's what's happening. Um, and so Jesus, the rescuer, the savior, the one who descends from heaven to those who are both far away from the kingdom and those who are near, uh, he comes to break this sin-hardened, hierarchical system down. That's part of the kingdom. That's part of dying on the cross is to disrupt this system and to break it, to erode it, to give it a body blow. And instead of that, to encourage a radical, radical community of equals, of brothers, sisters, friends, colleagues, all together. And so how does he do this? This comes to the trickster part. Um, how does he do this? So uh, Matthew 18.1, it says, like we said, that the time the disciples came to Jesus and asked who then is the grace in the kingdom of heaven. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't say, not you dopes. Like he doesn't berate them or tell them, this isn't my idea of kingdom. Like he doesn't go on some sort of rant. Instead, it says, he called a little child to him and placed the child among them. This is, so I did one slide, then go to the next slide. Jesus trickster, trickster trademark. So he trademarked that. You may not know that. You can't use that. One time only. Uh, but that's what he does. He does this great piece of performance art where he puts a child and he says, hey, this is how we lead. This is discipleship, of having this perspective. So now, is this child like, is he the next leader? Is he like the golden child, Larry, the Jewish child, who will rise up and replace Jesus? Now, if you're a literalist, you could go that way. Maybe not use the word Larry, but whatever. Um, but no, of course not. Uh, the child is a symbol, a picture, a metaphor of what leadership in Jesus' kingdom could look like, should look like, might look like, if we can embrace the gospel he brings, which costs us something, right? It's, there's some discomfort in this shifting and changing and 
and what God's Spirit may be moving in us uh, as, and not just as individuals. This is a community thing. This is a communal call to this. And so what are children like? Well, apparently they play drums on little wooden stools and kind of poke their mom once in a while while she's trying to lead worship and she's keeping her composure and so it's all good. Uh, but kids are great. They're not totally innocent and they can be very naughty. I will acknowledge that. Uh, but kids are often without guile, right? Like a lot of us armor up in life. We're like, oh, I got to go into this situation or I got to get my armor on. I can't be vulnerable, can't be real or myself or I'm scared. So I, I play it a certain way. Maybe I leave a meeting earlier. I, do, I, I have to do things to feel safe and good. And, and that's fine. That's normal. Like we all have to cope in those ways sometimes. But children are really uh, beautiful in this way at times because they can be without guile. They're not calculating often about where do I fit in the scheme of things. They just play their drum <laughs> on, the, on the stool and they're just kind of there. Like they're just kind of in the moment. That's a beautiful thing. That's an amazing, that's an amazing gift. They don't have an egotist, egotistical agenda. You know, she was letting Chris have all the glory. She was just kind of air drumming back there. Uh, but kids are curious. Kids want to know why things the way they are. They're, they don't, they're not worried about looking dumb or whatever. They'll just ask weird questions and do their thing. They're vulnerable. They cry when they're sad. Like my daughter, they have little temper tantrums when they're, you know, kids don't like, we're good at faking, right? It's like something happens at work and you're burning fires of anger inside, but outside you're like, cool, no problem. Like, that's great. Uh, until you see your friends and you're like, oh my goodness, right? You, you, oh, okay, maybe I'm, <laughs> this is me. This is just me, I will own this. Uh, if you're, you may be not like that. Uh, it reminds me of my son, Ethan. He played lacrosse for a couple years when he was about nine and 10. And uh, he, the first year he played, he'd never played hockey and he hadn't played really physical aggressive sports and many of the boys had. And so, and you can cross check in lacrosse really, and you can really get creamed. And so we were playing a team. Some guy comes up to Ethan's friend on the team he was getting to know, just cranks him in the numbers and you don't wear as much padding, so this kid just goes down, like just crumples. Uh, and there's a you know penalty, whatever, all this stuff, and all the team runs back to the bench and both teams go to their benches. But Ethan, because he doesn't know how this game operates, he goes over to the kid and he's like, hey man, like are you okay? And like, he's trying to like check in on him and his coach just yelled in the most, you know, the aggressive coach angry voice, <laughs> Ethan, get over here. So he's like, ah, like kind of startled and runs back to the bench. Um, but you love that, that heart of a child that, hey, I just, I'm just worried about my friend. It's my first impulse, not what are the things I'm supposed to do. It's just, I want to check in with this guy. So then Jesus says this radical thing in Matthew 18, 3, all of the stuff he said thus far is radical, but then he says, Truly I tell you, unless you change, and so he's talking to his already disciples, already a kind of established churchy group, you need to change and become like little children or you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Woof. 
And who is Jesus speaking to? Again, it's not the outsiders of the church. It's not second status people of the time, women or children or Samaritans or pagans or Syrophoenicians or unclean people or whatever. No, he is speaking to men in the church. If we want to get a little bit literal about it. Status-seeking men. He's speaking to the disciples. This is the earliest form of the church. And what kind of leader does Jesus want to form in his earliest followers? He insists that they must change. You men must change. You who hold power must change. This reminds me of the story where he washes the disciples' feet in John 6. And it's a beautiful story. Um, I'm just going to go to it right here on my phone. So John 13 um, you know, they've all come in, this is a familiar story for some of us, and it's time, as tradition goes, somebody washes everybody else's feet, and nobody's, nobody's going to do, it's a stare down. You know, it's like a Western. Everybody's staring at each other, going, who's going to do it? I'm not going to do it. I'm not. And Jesus is like, oh, you guys, I'll do it. Uh, and so he, he, this is what the text says. It says, just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. And then he says this beautiful line, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father, and this is the key verse about leadership. Jesus, I don't even like that word leadership, but let's say leadership with air quotes. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God, and that he was returning to God. And so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. You know, it's really remarkable, Jesus here, his sense of identity and self. You know, there's a lot of fear in the room, a lot of status-seeking, a lot of fear about looking vulnerable to the other men. Nobody, you know, this is going to diminish me if I get down on my knees and wash other people's feet. I'll be diminished as a person. I'll be less than. And Jesus is like, this has nothing to do with it. And he's like, I'm fine. I'm the, I'm the son of the Father in heaven, no matter what I do. And he's, there's no shadow, no ego, no none of that stuff. He just walks across the room and does this uh, in stride. Jesus is totally comfortable being himself in this situation. And in this room, dank and reeking with the fearful egotism and self-protection, Jesus radically dismantles a power of the age. He takes that power down. So now we have finally set the table for the parable in Matthew uh, 18, 10 to 14. This is where we're getting to shepherd Jesus. And so, and so the first, so we'll hop over from, we were reading verse 1, 2, and 3. We're just going to jump down to verse 10, uh, the parable of the wandering sheep. And this is what it says, the first line. And it's Jesus' words again to his disciples. So he's been talking about becoming childlike in a sense, having this openness and taking down that armor that we protect ourselves with. And then he says this, he kind of shifts from saying become childlike in your leadership to also 
and protect children, protect others who are, do, who, who are living this way in community, in openness and vulnerability. And he says this uh, in verse 10, see to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my father in heaven. You know, that verse kind of cracks me up because the first part of the verse is just so powerful. It's such a powerful ethic. Let me say those words again. See, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. What a, what a challenge in that context. Don't despise children. Don't despise those who are trying to live in that truth and vulnerability and honesty in their spiritual journey. But then he says that very obtuse thing, for I tell you that their, their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. I am not even going to touch that. That is just way too esoteric. I'm not going there. Um, however, the kind of interesting thing is the next verse, if you're looking at your Bible or Bible app, verse 11 is often missing in this text because it's taken from Luke and it was kind of, it was the verse about where Jesus says, I've come to seek and save the lost. And it was taken from Luke and it was inserted here later on. So people sometimes don't include it. And then you have this kind of unusual bit about angels in heaven. And you know, sometimes we read these passages and we get real bound up in like, I need to understand what's happening. And like, we get like, it's like our brain, we feel like if I can get my brain to kind of make sense of this, it'll somehow enrich my faith. Yet the text, that first part of verse 10 is not incidental to this whole passage. You know, if we went a few verses earlier in 18.6, Jesus said this, if anyone causes any one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Like, even as a metaphor, that, like, take your foot off the gas, Jesus. That's a little, that's, you're being scary now. <laughs> like, that's, that's a lot. But this is the ethics of Christ. He's trying to, in, inspire that will inspire disrupt the system that the disciples are caught in and give them a different way of conceptualizing and believing and practicing the faith and so we can get caught up in the weeds of how does this work and why isn't verse 12 in there and like oh or, or people get all caught up in like christologies or or apologetics i'm going to prove things and whatever when it's in black and white right there See that you do not despise one of these little ones. There's just some spicy ethics right here for the early church to grapple with. And oh, was that a funny thing? Spicy ethics? Okay, good, good, I'm glad. Uh, that kind of threw me off too. Um, yeah, so I'll just jump ahead here a little bit. With everything we now know about tr childhood trauma and violence and abandonment issues, would not this simple command be revolutionary if the church lifted it up again? If the church went here, instead of getting caught up in theological questions about this passage? How is verse, a verse like verse 10 a throwaway line? 
And some people would see it that way. It's kind of a line on the way to the main point of the passage. He comes to seek and save the lost. Let's focus on Savior Jesus. But the ethics are right here. Don't despise children. I'm tempted to add disclaimers here about parenting. And we all know kids need healthy boundaries and all that stuff. Uh, some are let loose to drum on stools, as we've seen this evening. Um, and everyone frets, you know, about overindulging kids, like, oh, spoiling or whatever. But some so-called Christian boundaries, too, have been veiled forms of abuse and control instead of love, acceptance, and healthy parental leadership. And these wounds last. They persist. That's what Shelley Rambo says, the theologian. These wounds persist. They stay with us. Rebecca Chop said it this way. Uh, she's a theologian from the U.S. She says, theology is not primarily a debate about ontological or epistemological categories, so they're basically like interpretive categories, but rather fashions a discourse and practices for living justly. That's a good theology. How do I live justly in the world right now? In my world, in my context, the kids who are maybe my kids or the kids who are around me or the kids on my street or I'm a teacher or I'm a, like, where, where do I live justly in relationship to this ethic that Jesus is calling his earliest disciples to a bunch of men, you know, <laughs> I, should, I don't want to say anything about kids, church and men, so I won't, um, but I did. Uh, so our, our world is waking up to the traumas of childhood and the deep and abiding brokenness this brings into people's lives. And we see our Lord and Savior 2,000 years ago saying the same kind of things. Don't despise kids. Don't wound children. Don't stop them from being themselves, from being vulnerable and curious and honest with emotions and without guile because that's part of my kingdom. That's actually what I want you adults to embrace into your hearts and maybe drop some of that cynicism and defensiveness. I think this is a word for the church today. I love the icons of uh, uh, pictures of Jesus with children. And so that's a great one. I love these kinds of pictures that he welcomes them, that he's safe, that he would never hurt a child, but he would get angry and maybe active if someone threatened a child around him. I also love the modern translation of these verses in our time in the next picture. This is, a, this, is this same ethic that Jesus is calling for us and our First Nations friends have made us aware. They've heightened this conversation in our, so, in our broader social concept, con, context. But this is also a prophetic word to the church. Every child matters. Every child matters. Maybe God is asking modern day disciples to go back to these passages and first be indignant, not about that I didn't get my place in this dysfunctional hierarchy that's not going to be, you know, whatever it is, it is. But to be indignant about systems that privilege colonial people and crushes indigenous children in Canada and around the world. Maybe Jesus wants those systems to come crumbling down. It's like he's challenging sort of the church and church leadership in Matthew 23. Is about kind of your external appearance or is 
Are you living into this kingdom reality that Jesus is, is calling us to? And then finally, we get to the parable. <laughs> so we're, this is the end. I'm not going not gonna to drag this out talking about the parable forever. Um, but I think this is interesting because for us to understand that social context, then we can come to the parable and kind of see what Jesus is saying instead of just saying, oh, that's a real nice parable that Jesus goes, one of his fuzzy sheeps goes astray and he goes and like puts it on his shoulders in the classic Jesus pose uh, and he marches, you know, jauntily back into town or whatever. Um, and so this is what the story says. Uh, this is what he tells them. He says, what do you think? In verse 12, if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills to go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier that one about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. That is a cool equation. That is a fantastic, that is so anti-capitalistic in its phrase. He's happy about the one. I love it. Uh, in the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. You know, we can conclude just thinking about this, Jesus is not a zero-sum savior. There's not like a limited system, a limited amount of his love or grace or mercy or the way he works in the world and his love overflows. Because he does overflow, it's like more than enough always his grace, way more. So it's always spilled. so we don't have to live in that fear and that anxiety that there's, there's not going to be enough or there's ugh, it's stuff that capitalism does. The kingdom's different. There's so much, it's so wasteful. <laughs> it's a beautiful wastefulness of overflowing of his grace. And so he'll leave the 99 to go find the one. One matters, everyone matters, every child matters. I love the story, uh, and Bryn is not here. Did I say her name right? Bryn? Yeah. I love that story uh, she told or she enacted in her life about a month ago, I think. And I was following it on Facebook because that's how I have community. <laughs> I have community online. I just live in a disembodied, no, I'm just kidding. But I did, I did follow it very closely on the Awaken uh, Facebook stuff and just kind of read all the things and was praying and kind of, hey, God, do you want me to get involved? But I just, but part of it, too, is it's a rejoicing story, right? Like her, her friend saying, hey, I need some help. I need some assistance. I want to come off the street. And she's just like, I'm going to drive to, I'm just leaving and driving there. That is like, that's God. That is how... God functions, and maybe, you know, you get kind of rational dads. You know, my, my sons have taught me this thing when you son someone. Have you ever heard of that? Where you kind of, you, it's like you parent them, like, oh, I'll tell you how to, like people can do it at workplaces and stuff. They call it sonning. Don't son me, they'll say. Uh, and I don't know where it's going with that. <laughs> I need to wind up because now I'm losing threads. Uh, Anyhow, I love Bryn's story is the point, and I just thought I saw God in it. This is God. This is God where, oh, I was going to say maybe somebody kind of more like, hey, let's, let's be smart about this or buy a bus ticket or like kind of be, like be that dadding thing. 
But she's just like, no, I'm just going to drive and go get my friend. I was like, that's the best. Like, I don't know, efficient, inefficient. It's the way God works in the world. It's the way God wants to work, and it's the way God wants to work through us as the church. Like, God's not like the Wizard of Oz who can pull a bunch of levers and make a whole bunch of stuff happen. He, we're here for a reason. There's something we are to embody about the kingdom, and that's what he's doing in this whole passage. Is like, you guys need to do this. This is your call. And so may we all learn not a jealous, indignant attitude towards the hierarchies of our world, but a holy, indignant attitude at the ridiculous injustices of capitalism and colonialism. And may we join with the great shepherd and go wander the hills with him, searching for vulnerable sheep and bringing them home. Amen.